Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, the podcast about contemporary biography. I'm Caroline Baum. Talk about good timing. If ever there was a moment to bring out the biography of a pioneer of disease prevention, it would be now. Joe Willett's marvellously engaging portrait of Lady Mary Montague, a scandalous figure in Georgian England, is much more than that. Now, Lady Mary was born in 1682 and died in 1762. As well as being an early adopter of inoculation, Lady Mary was a writer, a wit and a unique figure in public life. I'd never heard of her, had no idea that she was friends with Alexander Pope and Voltaire, and that she had radical ideas about women and money, and wrote copious amounts of poetry and essays, many of which fortunately survived, and she lived outside the norms and conventions of the times. I talked to Jo Willett via Zoom at her home in Britain. Jo, welcome to Life Sentences. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. (laughs) Now, you have a very successful career as a producer of drama and comedy for TV. What made you want to write a historical biography? Uh, Well, I think it's that I'd done TV for quite a long, long time. And I had a stage of life where actually producing TV is quite full on. It's a young person's game. And as I was 60 last year, I wanted to move into a slightly different way of life. And I'd always wanted to write something. And I thought that a biography... I thought non-fiction would be a good thing to do because I've worked a lot with writers on fiction and I didn't really, I'm not even sure I could write fiction, but I didn't want to kind of step on their space. So I thought it'd be good to see if I could find a subject and write a, a, a non-fictional biography. And how did you choose Lady Mary? Uh, well, I was thinking because I had studied English and because I worked a lot with writers, I thought it'd be really good to write about a writer. And I love literary biography. So that was what I was looking for. And I was kind of thinking about various people. By chance, I happened to be in Lichfield Cathedral, which is sort of in the middle of England. And there was a monument to this woman, Lady Mary Wortley Montague. I had never heard of her. And it talked about how, thank you for her amazing pioneering work with smallpox. This was way, way before COVID. But I thought, well, that's quite quite interesting. And I said to my husband, I've never heard this person. He said, well, surely you must know her. She was a great friend of Alexander Pope's and she fell out with him. And I remember her as being a footnote when I studied Alexander Pope. And so I thought, I was quite cross he knew about her. So I then began to read her letters, her selected letters, which were edited by Isabel Grundy. And she has just such a vibrant voice. And immediately I was drawn into her her life. And they start with her courtship with Edward Wortley Montague. And and immediately you're reading it thinking, this isn't going to go well. They're they're not well suited. And so I I immediately was emotionally involved. And I kind of went from there with it, really. And and thought, as I got more into her life, I thought there is so much here to write about. Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you've just said. I'm stunned by your husband's remembering of her name in a footnote. I mean, that is just (laughs) extraordinary. But the other thing is, it's funny that you should mention, you know, reading their courtship letters and thinking this is not going to go well, because she did at least manage to avoid being married to a man called Clotworthy Skeffington, <laughs> who is the person that her father had in mind. And I gather that that name, Clotworthy Skeffington, he was an Irish peer, 
there were several people in his family called Clockworthy. What were they thinking? <laughs> isn't it wonderful? It's such a great name, isn't it? I know. <laughs> but maybe if you're Irish. I mean, obviously, it's great for all of us. She didn't marry an Irish peer and go off. Because it would have been, her life would have been very, very different if she hadn't. Yes, yeah. I mean, actually, Edward Wortley Montague was, he was a suitable suitor. And her father and she did start negotiations, but then they kind of didn't go anywhere, which is why he came up with the idea of Plotworthy. Yes. Right, yes. right. And But ultimately, she and Wortley eloped, did they not? They did, yes, because she was so worried she was going to be forced into a marriage. She and her, her female friends divided men uh, <laughs> into three categories, heaven, hell and in between and Wortley was in between and uh, limbo limbo as she said and I mean when she first met him I think he was heaven for her but you know remember she was young she was inexperienced but the fact that they knew each other for quite a long time uh, I think by the time she eloped with him he was limbo but she would rather marry limbo than marry hell because as soon as she met Plotworthy Skeffington she knew she could never marry him she doesn't That's say right. why, but you kind of you can kind of read between the lines there. So yes, but she thought it was better to elope with limbo than to marry <laughs> hell. <laughs> now let's take a step back because there's a an important episode in her childhood which you bring a very modern sensibility to in your telling of it. And I think that your modern take on things is particularly interesting in this biography in several instances, which we may come to a little bit later. But just tell us a little bit about what happened to Mary when she was seven years old. Yes, yes. So she was the eldest of four children and her mother died of post-birth complications when her only brother was born. So he died when Mary was, she died when Mary was just three. And their father was a kind of ambitious young aristocrat who liked his life of wine and women and kind of sent the children to live with his mother in the country. But when she was this age, when she was seven, she was, she, they were in, in Chelsea staying with an aunt. And the father was a member of something called the Kit Kat Club. And actually, there's been an interesting book recently about the Kit Kat Club. And the idea of the Kit Kat Club was that every year they toasted the most beautiful woman of the year. And her father, Evelyn Pierpont, said, well, I think my eldest daughter could be that. I know she's only seven. And they, the members all said, this kind of male drinking club in London said, uh, well, we'll have to see her, you know, if you think that's the case. So he summoned her from Chelsea and she was brought by carriage to this room where she entered with all these baying, middle-aged, drunken men. And then, the, as she tells the story, her daughter tells the story, she was, or, and her granddaughter, she was passed from lap to lap between these men. And her granddaughter, who was sort of her earliest biographer, really said, oh, she said she never again had such a wonderful day. But of course, ah. <laughs> we look at it and we think that is kind of borderline abusive, really. And also, I think very tellingly, having done that, her father did not spend the rest of the evening with her. He went on to another party and she was sent trundling back in the carriage, back to her probably rather disapproving married aunt in Cheney Walk. 
So, you know, quite it's complicated. It's complicated. Yes. 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 But I do like the fact that having told the story of her being passed around in this way, almost like a, a parcel or a chattel, that you do make the point that in in the way we see this today, we would have a great deal of discomfort and sort of unease about that behaviour. That's right. Warning bells would ring for us, wouldn't they? Or they, they do, would. They do I ring. mean, yes. She was obviously a very pretty child, and she went on to be a very beautiful young woman, and she was celebrated for her beauty. But she lost it, didn't she? She did. She did, yes. So once she was married to Workley, and first of all, they lived outside London, but then they came to London, and in London, she contracted smallpox which, of course, was something that happened to a lot of people. You have to remember that in, in Europe as a whole, in the 18th century, one in 10 people died of smallpox. I mean, it was a very, very common disease, but very serious. Her only brother had died of it 18 months before. And so she, and in fact, the papers thought that, that Mary might not survive it. But she was left with smallpox scars, which, of course, you were if you had smallpox. And also she was left with no eyelashes. So her her friend said she had the workly stare after that. And she, her eyes were never that good. She couldn't read at night. And that was apparently very common. Do you think, Joe, that there was any sense in which there was a sort of mixed blessing to her losing her looks in that it meant that she invested consciously or unconsciously in her wit because she obviously was a phenomenally clever and talented woman. And maybe if she had been able to rely for longer on her beauty, she might not have written so much. Maybe. That's an interesting point. Maybe. I mean, I think it's worth saying that she was always even before smallpox, she was absolutely celebrated for her intelligence. She was unusual like that. She was, by the way, almost totally self-taught. The, her sister and her were left alone in the, the family home. And by chance, it was one of the best libraries in, in Europe there. And so they would, and the governess was supposed to be teaching them of sort of sewing and dancing and things. So they had to lie and say they were reading romances. But in fact, they taught themselves Latin and Greek and they read voraciously and started writing there, sort of in a way, a bit like the Brontes. Mm. So when Workley met her, one of the things he was immediately struck by was her intelligence. So I think she was always, and actually a contemporary said she was good looking, but actually it was the brain that was the, even in those days when she was a young courtier at the, at the court of George I, it was that that was very special about her. So so how and when did she earn the title The Comet of the Enlightenment? <laughs> that was quite a bit later. Yes, yes, that somebody called her that. I think from memory that was Joseph Spence who met her later in life in middle age when he was a tutor to Lord Lincoln and she was she was a middle-aged woman travelling in, in Europe at the time, yes. Now, you you choose to begin your story, and this is obviously very relevant and very topical to us now, with the account of how she pioneered the Turkish method of engraftment mm -hmm. as a form of inoculation against smallpox in 1721. You're not the only person to claim her as a pioneer of vaccination, but I just want to clarify what it is she actually achieved, apart from the fact of adopting a method that was current in Turkey 
and experimenting with it on her own children. But I mean, does that does that make her a pioneer of vaccination or just an early adopter? Yes, and of course, lots of people have said that, yes, about her. I think the important thing is to kind of analyse exactly what she did. So Wortley became the ambassador to the Turkish Empire. So she travelled out with him, and of course, she was pioneering in that way for a woman to be doing that. And she she wasn't a member of the Royal Society, so she was excluded from the scientific establishment, who had begun to hear about the fact that in Turkey there was something you could do which protected you from smallpox. When she was there, while Wortley was away, she did have their son inoculated. It's inoculation, not vaccination, which is a kind of an important distinction. Mm -hmm. So an inoculation meant that you had made cuts in the wrists and the ankles and you put a little bit of actual smallpox pus into the person. So you basically gave them a very low dose of smallpox where they would have had thousands of spots they only had a few spots but she's that isn't really what she's pioneering in in that the previous british ambassador had had his sons inoculated in turkey but he didn't carry this information back which mary did so she wrote back from turkey we only have one letter but she we know that she wrote more than one letter talking about the process and saying that if she lived to survive the trip to Turkey, she w- she knew that doctors would be against it and she would war with doctors. So again, I think that's very pioneering to be brave enough to do that. She then travelled back. Actually, there was another outbreak of smallpox in uh, 1719 after her return, but she wasn't, she just was nervous. She knew it was going to be very difficult. But in 1721, she knew she had this knowledge and she decided that she would inoculate their only daughter. Again, she waited until Workley was away. And again, she she inoculated her daughter. And then she made sure that physicians visited and society friends visited. So she publicised that. But the surgeon who was with her, who had been with her in Turkey, Mr Maitland, and who she then called to Twickenham to, so that they could inoculate her daughter, he wanted those people to be around right from the beginning. But she had analysed, and again, I think this, is, this qualifies her for science. She, a bit qualified to be called a scientist, she analysed that People were still infectious when they were inoculated until the time that their spots began to appear. So the smallpox pus would be added and then for 10 days there were no symptoms, but they were infectious. So she kept the physicians and the aristocrats away until her daughter had had got spots and then they could show. So again, I, I think there are arguments that you can make and I think it's important, particularly because there aren't that many early female scientists. So I think it's fair enough to argue. And of course, scientists didn't exist as a word in those days. You could be a man of science, but you couldn't be a scientist, or let alone a woman of science. No, no. I want to ask you something about the psychology of that moment when she decides that she's going to experiment on her own children. I mean, to me, it's fascinating when you look at her later relationship with them as 
adults. I mean, they were problematic children, particularly her son, Edward, who really was something of an entitled wastrel. I mean, when you look at that story of her inoculating her children, Freud would have had a field day with this, (laughs) wouldn't he? Yes, I suppose so. And she came under a lot of criticism for that, for being a bad mother. But she had lost her only brother to it. And she had been through it. She knew how dangerous it was. And she was the first woman to be invited to dine alone with the wives of Turkish dignitaries. And she learned Turkish, so she spoke to them in Turkish. And they assured her that it was totally safe. Actually, as the French ambassador at the time said, it was a bit like in the West, people went to spas. They went had smallpox parties where they formed groups and were inoculated. So... I think she had done her research there and probably and the, the risk was greater that children might die of smallpox. Yeah. You know. So yeah, but but of course she came under under a lot of criticism for that. Yes. I wonder whether Boris Johnson ever thought that he could justify the parties at Downing Street as a sort of modern day version of a smallpox party. <laughs> The course of history might have been different if he had. (laughs) Now, you you mentioned there that one letter that you cite. And it seems to me that your biography is absolutely brought to life by a lot of quotation from her, direct quotation from her and from her contemporaries. Oh, lovely. You say at the end of the book that we've lost so much. But actually, Mm. it seems to me that you had a lot to draw on. So what was the archive that you were able to access like? Well, I mean, I'm exceedingly lucky because there were two academic historians, literary historians, Robert Halsband in the 1970s, and then Isabel Grundy, who's still alive today and wrote the most fantastic and very dense biography in the 1990s. So they had ensured that a lot of Mary's work, I mean, her letters, because she was wrote many, many letters, were published. So you can today buy, I don't think they're in print actually, but you can buy the complete letters of Lady Mary Wetley Montague in four volumes, or three volumes. And then also Isabel Grundy's done selected letters, which are very good. And also her prose writing and her poetry. So there is a lot that is published, actually, but I think it's not very well known, really. And then, of course, there are archives. So I tried, I actually had to kind of scour archives to things, find things that they hadn't covered because so much was already published. And did you find things that were original research? I mean, you know, every biographer hopes that they're going to come across a cache of letters or poems or oh. a diary. Was there anything like I that know. for you? If only there had been more. There really wasn't very much. I just found some writing of Workley's, actually, which which he wrote when he was coming back from Turkey, which is, is kind of interesting. And some of her very early writing, I think they hadn't actually published. And it was lovely to look at that. But I can't say that, you know, original research is a major part of the biography, sadly. No. Well, I think what you've done, though, is, is you know, you may, you may have been lacking in original new material, but you bring such a sense of drama 
to the story and the way it's kind of paced and the way you land every chapter. I did keep thinking of your experience in drama production in terms of pace and rhythm. And so I wondered whether you thought there were some transferable skills there. Oh, certainly. That's my aim, really, in in, in, in the, the book that I'm now researching. Yes, it's to make these stories accessible for people. And I mean, I often say to people, I feel Lady Mary should be as well known as Virginia Woolf or Mary Shelley. One of those people who, even if you don't really know their work, they figure in your consciousness. And, and Lady Mary isn't. So my whole aim was to try to to see if I could, you know, bang the drum for her and, and make her story accessible to people. You say that you started work on this long before COVID, but it doesn't hurt, does it, to have our minds all fixated on a virus it was when, when considering a book like this. <laughs> it was extraordinary because I, I delivered the book in March of 2020, which was just when we were all going into lockdown. Yes. Oh so God. when I wrote the book and, and I described how there was an, an outbreak of smallpox and people had to stay in their homes and they would send servants between, I remember writing and thinking, how extraordinary, never realising that that would then be happening God. to us as I delivered the book. And then it was published in March of 2021, which is when here in Britain we were really starting to be vaccinated. So it was, you know, it was a twist of fate, but it was extraordinarily topical. Absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Yes. You say that she was both a remarkable scientist and obviously a very early, ahead of her time, feminist. And I'm wondering how you define her as a feminist in the context of Georgian times? I mean, can you just sort of expand on that idea a bit? Yes, yes, of course. Well, again, like scientists, feminist is not a word that exists in the 18th century. It came in the 19th century. Mary had this older friend, Mary Estelle, who was a great kind of, well, a, a, a great, a wonderful person for her, a great teacher for her, really. And I think Mary Estelle is more what we would tend to think of as a feminist. In that, and a kind of blue stocking before there were blue stockings. Absolutely. And she never married. She lived on her own earnings. And she wrote a book about thinking, about advocating female education and saying that women should be educated separately from men. And of course, Lady Mary had read that as a, as a teenager in the library. And I thought that was a wonderful book. And in fact, Mary Estelle was quite critical of Lady Mary. She felt that she was sort of too worldly, too flirty with men. Mm -hmm. And of course, Lady Mary never had to earn a living. So it make, that makes it a bit different for us. You know, we, 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 it's difficult to think of her as when you think of Mary Wollstonecraft, who came quite soon afterwards, who was much closer allied to Mary Estelle, really. In fact, at one point I did think of kind of doing a Three Marys biography. <laughs> <laughs> but the publishers were sort of adamant to me that you'll never get, you'll never get a book published about Georgian feminists. It's just not a a big enough area to write about. So so I had to slightly change my, my thinking. Yes, but yes, and I'm glad. I guess one of the things that is really complicated as a through line of your biography is her relationship to money. Because on the mm. one hand, I think she believes that women should keep their own money and have their own money. 
And at the same time, she is involved in a very unfortunate episode of speculation, which does her tremendous reputational damage, doesn't it? And at the same time, adding another layer then, she is incredibly susceptible to embezzlement and to men who are absolute shysters. Yes, she is. She is, I know. I know. I'm not sure that really that the wealth did her much good. Presumably you're talking about the South Sea bubble, are you? The South Sea bubble yeah, crisis? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah, and I, I think that's a very kind of classic story of Lady Mary, really, whereas, where everything, it was very fashionable, the South Sea bubble. People all felt they were going to make great fortunes and she was very interested intellectually in it. And she sort of advised people on, on how they should invest because it was quite difficult to invest. And then this Frenchman, Nicolas Raymond, who was quite keen on her, kind of gave her some money to invest. She didn't particularly want to do that because she felt it might compromise her. But she invested for him. And of course, then everything went wrong. And she hadn't told Workley. So then Raymond tried to blackmail her. And it got very, very sticky for her. Mm. Because Workley being Workley was actually on the committee of MPs that MPs set up as kind of MPs who behaved really bad, really, really well and were incorruptible to look at how come MPs at the time, politicians at the time, had invested in the South Sea bubble. So he really did not want to be told by his wife that she had actually also got them into trouble. So that, that can't have been at all easy, yes. And then, yes, she was very, as, as an older woman, I mean, so what we should say is that in her 40s, she fell in love with, a much younger Italian, Francesco Algarotti, who was in his 20s, who unbeknown to her was bisexual, and she was completely carried away. I think she had never really experienced, you know, passion before, as she did for him. I think probably the marriage with Workley was was quite kind of arid. And so she she fell totally in love with him, even though she knew that really he couldn't love her in the same way. But she persuaded herself that he had agreed to them going to live together in Venice. So she left Britain and went to live with him in Venice. And certainly part of their relationship, when at one point he's coming back to, to London and he kind of indicates he needs her to send him money. So, you know, that, that the, the power balance wasn't great there anyway. I don't think he was totally interested in her for money, but, but actually bearing in mind he had this old woman who was keen on him, the thought she might send him money was quite helpful. And then inevitably, of course, the relationship with Algarotti didn't really work and it came to an end. She decided to stay on in Europe and she stayed on for 23 years. It's a long, long time Amazing. to be in Amazing. Europe. But as part of that, because, of course, Europe was very war-torn, she was living in Avignon and she wanted to get back to Venice because she loved Italy. And this complete shyster, Count Palazzi, said that he would take her back, would accompany her. But of course, he sort of semi-kidnapped her. And for 10 years, really, he basically took all her money and controlled her until eventually she came to her senses and was brave enough to get out of that very difficult, coercive, controlling relationship. Absolutely. I mean, he was so devious. Oh, the yes. Tricks, the tricks that he pulled on her were so complicated. I know. I mean, she was sort of invited to a dinner with his aunt and meanwhile all the jewellery was stolen and then he blamed it on his brother. But it was clearly him. 
you know, and, and then someone left her some money to have a ring made. And again, he persuaded her and he introduced her to a banker in Brescia, then kept saying that the banker was ill and couldn't see her. I mean, yes, it was. And then made her, she bought two houses when he was around. And again, the actually the contracts, she didn't realise it, but the contracts meant that actually those houses weren't hers at all. Yeah, yeah, so she lost quite a bit of money. And at the end of it, she did think she was going to write an expose. And of course, I think if she was alive today, she would. But she was persuaded against it. I think she thought it was too difficult. Yes. Yes. I mean, he did later go to prison, but not for what he'd done to her, for other stuff. I'm glad. I'm glad he went to prison. And I wish she had written that expose. That would have been fascinating. Yes. Let's um, turn to another equally spectacular aspect of her <laughs> life, which is her friendship with Alexander Pope yeah. and why it went so badly wrong and turned into a feud. I think by the end, wasn't she calling him the wasp of Twickenham. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So Alexander Pope was a very strange kettle of fish, wasn't he? He was. He was. Yes. He was He was a complicated figure. He had had Pott's disease as a child, which is um, TB of the bone. So he had, didn't grow. He was only, he was under five foot in, in, in size. And Mary was quite small, so that kind of that worked quite well. He was in constant pain and had to wear a kind of a vest to kind of to keep himself upright. So he had a life that was kind of probably not like most 18th century men. He didn't go off to war. He couldn't travel. And so I think he was probably quite waspish in that sense. He was also brought up a Catholic. And of course, in those days, that was very difficult. That meant he could never really enter public life. But he was a brilliant writer. And by the time she met him, he was already a successful published writer. She met him at the studio of Charles Jervis, the Irish portrait painter, who was painting her husband's friend Joseph Addison at the time. And Pope used to stay there whenever he was in London. And I think they were both outsiders. They both and they immediately sparked. They get on, got on fantastically well. They were both very witty. And I think they just really connected intellectually. And for a time, she and Pope and Gay wrote a whole series, a, a sequence of, of poems called the Town Eclogues, which was sort of a, an 18th century rewriting of, of Virgil's uh, rural eclogues about London and about writing about women and women with their, their men friends rushing them upstairs while the husband came in and, and, and prostitutes and, you know, very interesting. And he, when she wrote them with Pope, there is a little story about her saying, you know, be careful because whatever is good will be written as yours. So don't touch my work because people will think it's yours if it's good. So you can already feel the kind of sexual tension there and the rivalry. When she then went to Turkey, he wrote her a series of letters. And I I mean, now you read those letters and, you know, your kind of me too hackles go up because freed up from being with her. He talked about things like we're a couple that as soon as we're alone together, we'll tear off our shifts and, you know, make love kind of thing. Uh, and he talks about he, how he longs for her oriental soul. I mean, he, he definitely was able to talk right to her in a way he was never able to talk to her. And I think as she came back to England, that was quite scary. So she managed to deflect it 
by kind of writing a rather kind of ironic poem to him about a poem he'd written. And he kind of realised that actually he needed to control his feelings. So for a time when she returned to London, he didn't see her. But then Mm. the friendship started again. And for about 10 years, they got on pretty well. Everyone knew they were great friends and they had a lot of friends in common and they both lived in Twickenham. Uh, and in fact, the house at the Wortley Montague was rented and then bought. You could go through a gate and then just along a uh, path and you got to, to Pope's house. So obviously there was a lot between the two of them. But then in the sort of late 1720s, something happened and we don't exactly mm. know why, but they fell out very, very badly. And so because it had been a passionate friendship, it became a passionate enmity between them. So you speculate that he declared himself to her. So was it that he suddenly said he had feelings for her that she found inappropriate and she made fun of that and that made him sort of shrivel up with the kind of self-consciousness of being unattractive and undesirable? Or yes, what I mean, do you think happened? Yes, I mean, her granddaughter, Lady Louisa, wrote that in the family, that's what they all said had happened. And I think it it does make some sense that that probably happened. It's hard to know. There are other incidents that happened that may have actually been the reason. And you can't pinpoint exactly when it happened. But I think it's pretty likely that he might have said something that she laughed at him. There's a kind of 19th century portrait uh, portrait of them both where that's happening. But I mean, it's just it's a made up thing. You don't really know where that happened. But certainly from then on, he was increasingly vitriolic towards her. And of course, he was much more powerful. He was published. So he could he could publish what he wrote about her. And what I always thought was a kind of genius of nastiness was that he connected, he talked about her as being poxed. So he was aware that friends of theirs would know that she was connected to smallpox, Mm -hmm. um, but he was really, by calling her poxed, he was implying that she had syphilis. Um, and so, which is, and there's absolutely no evidence at all that she had syphilis, or indeed that up until the time she met Algarotti, she was unfaithful to Workley. But he, you know, he used that, which, you know, in the, in the cold light of day here, that looks pretty vicious, doesn't it, really? Well, I, I wanted to ask you about something about that, Joe. I'm, I'm curious, the sort of vibe of the book is a certain kind of license and freedom and sexual kind of openness. I mean, there was obviously scandal, but it does seem as if everybody in the book is having an affair with somebody else. So mm. is this does this predate the era of the libertine or what were the sexual mores of the time? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I think it probably slightly predates, but I think in the 18th century, you know, infidelity was a fairly accepted situation, really. Yes, you're right. There are a lot of people who do seem to be unfaithful to their their spouse or, or whatever. Yes, I think that's probably true. Yes. I mean, I can't remember whether at that era, in that era, it's possible to divorce. But I mean, if he had, would Pope have been able to damage her reputation in a significant way that would have dealt her a real social blow? Would it ostracize her from court? Yes. I mean, yes. So in terms of divorce, 
A woman couldn't, you, it would be very difficult for a woman to divorce. And what happened was you would go to court, you'd, you'd be unfaithful and then you'd go to court and the husband would be able to claim all the woman's wealth and uh, the woman would be damned for that. And in fact, Mary, along with Mary Estelle, did write some poems about that saying this is just not not on. Ah. And in fact, she advocated, which I think is rather wonderful, she said that people should every few years should have the chance to divorce <laughs> just come up this is the divorce day where if you want to you could divorce <laughs> <laughs> which i think is actually quite a good idea so i mean but i think yes she, she that didn't happen to her and it, in a way that wasn't what pope's attack was about but certainly pope did cause her huge damage socially she was ostracized from a lot of people and she tried to get people on her side and they really didn't help particularly i mean for instance her childhood friend henrietta cavendish hollis was married to the earl of oxford so she henrietta was a great great friend of lady mary's but she was henry lady mary could only ever go to dinner with their them if the earl of oxford who was on pope's side made sure that pope wasn't there for dinner <gasps> you know oh so my gosh. and i do say in the book that i think that that loneliness of being ostracised, along with the problems with her marriage and with both her children, probably led her towards Algarotti. I think if, if things had been more stable, I don't think that would have happened to her. What about another of her great sort of intellectual chums? I mean, I don't know how close they were, and obviously they didn't live in each other's pockets in the same way, but what about Voltaire? Yes, I mean, she... She did know Voltaire, but I think it was mm. a very, a much more distant relationship. He came to Britain and he praised her for the work she'd done on smallpox. But really, I think that was because he was trying to say, why didn't the French ambassador and his wife, why hadn't they done the same thing? Because if so, okay. France would be further ahead. Yes, but... Francesca Algarotti knew Voltaire well, so he had stayed with Voltaire before he came to London and met Lady Mary, and it was probably through knowing Voltaire that he got to meet the Wortley Montagues. Was she more progressive and more radical in her thinking than her husband? So can you just explain for those of us who don't know the difference between a Whig and a Tory, what those positions actually mean? Yes, yes. Lady Mary's whole family were very Whig and she described herself as being Whigissima, which I think is fantastic. The Tory, so there were two parties at the time, the Tories and the Whigs. The Tories were much more landed gentry and country and the Whigs were much more forward-thinking and uh, more interested in finance and uh, urban and the way that life was changing. And Lady Mary's ancestors on both sides, or, you know, you go back a couple of generations, there was the English Civil War, and they did quite well out of the English Civil War. And so as a result, they, they kind of, that's when the beginning of the Whig family, uh, Whig party happened, and they, they were all Whigs. And so Wortley Montague was actually a, a Whig MP. So he absolutely, on the surface of it, they were very, very similar. And when he didn't have a seat in their early marriage, you can mm. see in her letters that she was very, very, she was knowledgeable and very keen to get him re-elected. She was a great mover behind the scenes on that kind of thing. 
But as life progressed, I think she was just much more progressive in her thinking than he was. He was, I mean, when they were courting, he wrote to her and said, can you write to me in the style of business and put aside this wit? And you think, well, no, she'll never be able to do that. And he was a businessman. He had a family company in the northeast which was mining and he did amazingly well on that but he was very straight he wasn't witty he wasn't interested in words and ideas and things as she was and he is an early man his early career had come across Robert Walpole who became the first Whig British Prime Minister the first British Prime Minister and a Whig and he didn't like Walpole they were in the treasury together and he didn't get on with him whereas Lady Mary very much liked Walpole. They they were quite similar personalities. And in fact, she introduced Walpole to the young woman who he took as his mistress. And when his first wife died, he married. So she was that close to him. Mm. Yes. Mm. Very close to power. Obviously mm. quite a heady thing. Did yes. you ever come across anything that she wrote, Joe, about social issues like poverty or slavery? An interesting point. I think poverty, I can't think of her writing about, which is very, very telling, isn't it? I think she she liked the fact that she was pretty comfortable. Slavery... I, I wondered about that. Mm. Yes, yes. I don't... I think she was radical, but perhaps not that radical. She was interested... She was always interested in looking things from the fe- feminist point of view. But uh, actually... Although I say she was a Whig and progressive, as she got older, I mean, she was a snob and she became a terrible snob as she got older. And she, in fact, once said she felt that she'd been misled by her early governesses who had said that everybody was equal and she didn't think people were equal. So, you know, that isn't the case. (laughs) Slavery, I think the time in Turkey is very interesting because she was writing with fresh eyes on what it was like for women in Turkey. And there's a telling, it's only a few lines, but she came across this corpse in the street, a female corpse, which had been stabbed. And she was very taken by that and very taken by the fact that there would be no justice ever. Another way in which you bring her into the modern era as a kind of example of pioneering attitudes is in relation to her sister's struggles with mental health. And you suggest that in her attitudes to how her sister should be treated, she was ahead of her time. Yes, yes, that's right, yes. And I don't want to push this too far, but I think it's an area of her life that hasn't really been looked at. And so when I've said she's a mental health pioneer, some people said to me, well, not really. But I still think the story is a very interesting one in that, so her favourite sister was Frances, and Frances had the kind of arranged marriage that Mary managed to avoid. It was sorted by their father. The Earl of Mar was really only interested in Frances, who his first wife had died because she was going to bring a wealthy inheritance. And so they were married. They had uh, one daughter. But the significant thing with the Earl of Mar is he was a Scottish peer and he was a Jacobite. So um, actually he was a Tory. He wasn't a Whig. But he, in other words, he wasn't for the Hanoverian monarchs. He thought that the that Charles the, the, the Pretender should be king. And he was a Catholic. 
So very, very different from them. And in fact, he led a rebellion, an early rebellion, not the famous Bonnie Prince Charlie rebellion, but an early rebellion against the Hanoverians, which didn't go well. So young Francis was had to be exiled with him with no money to mainland Europe, to Paris, and uh, partly also in Rome. And Mark, trying probably to raise money, but foolishly agreed to spy for the British. So, and he was known as Bobbing John because he was, he was always bobbing to one side or the other and neither side trusted him. And I think when you describe that situation for Francis, you can understand how she fell into a very, very deep clinical depression. I mean, it's mm. not surprising. It was, I think her life was absolutely intolerable. And realising this, her, her husband sent her back to England. She was supposed to come to England. She'd been to England before to try and kind of raise, raise some money from everybody to keep them going. And But he dispatched her back and he never saw her again. So Lady Mary saw this favourite sister who she'd written to in Paris. sort of, And Francis had indicated things weren't that great. And Lady Mary said things like, oh, I think I find I'm feeling a bit low. Uh, a nice glass of champagne, a ride on a horse can make a huge difference. But I think when she actually saw Francis and she realised what a terrible state she was in, it was really a wake-up call for her. And then the Earl of Mar and his family, they were quite a big Scottish family, they really saw this as a financial issue because Mar wanted Francis's inherited income and he felt that he should have it. He had priority over her. And Lady Mary put her foot down and made it clear that the first priority was to get Francis somewhere where she could be looked after with humanity. And she did arrange for her ultimately to go to a very enlightened mental home, which was very, very different from the kind of bedlam that we are used to seeing in pictures, which Hogarth has depicted, where you were basically were held in chains and people would come and look at you and laugh at you as a kind of day out thing to do. She did not want that for Francis. And at some point, the, the, uh, the, the Mars actually kidnapped Frances and were going to take her to Scotland to keep her in a house there, at, which they owned, at, you know, at very little cost to them, so money could be sent to France. And Lady Mary managed to get uh, a piece of legal paper and, and rode out after them and managed to stop the horses and all St Albans and bring them back and protect Francis. So again, I think that's just a wonderful story, really. It is. And I mean, when you describe it that way, when you tell it that way, Joe, it sounds, it sounds gothic. I mean, you it can does. see that scene in a movie. <laughs> it's quite Mary Shelley, actually, isn't it, really? Yes, it I is. Know. Yes, it's very true. It's very true. And of course, as so often with Lady Mary, she was then vilified for that. Pope wrote about her, about how she was, she even took money from her sister, was the kind of view, which is actually completely opposite to what she was doing. She was trying to protect the sister's money. Exactly. So that she could be looked after. Yes. And then her sister's daughter turned against her and married one of the our family later. So, you know, so often with Lady Mary, she was trying her best, but she was very Marmite, as we say in England. What does that mean? It means that people either like you or they don't like you, like the taste of Marmite, you know, and she didn't, she, yes, some people just didn't like her. (laughs) Lots of people liked her, but 
Really interesting. <laughs> I've never heard that term very Marmite. I mean, I suppose we'd have to say very Vegemite. Very Vegemite. <laughs> but um, I, I find that with her story, everything sort of seems to backfire on her. Where her intentions are good, things kind of twist unexpectedly against her. I'm very yes. interested in the latter part of her life because I guess one of the things is that's striking about her is that she lives a long life. She's not particularly healthy for all of it. And yet she stays out of England for, as you say, over 20 years. She doesn't see her husband for decades. They seem to arrange a sort of harmonious correspondence and be better apart than they ever were together. Yes. How did she manage her life on her own? You know, you mentioned that she spent four years in Avignon. She spent the time in Venice. She obviously had a retinue. She had a small entourage of staff. She crossed the Alps with them multiple times when that wasn't particularly easy or safe. She doesn't seem to have had much physical fear. No, I think she didn't. I think she didn't. I mean, he sent a remittance out to her. So she had her kind of private income. But I think she wasn't that interested in money. And she, she lived okay on that. And when when she first went abroad on the way to go to see Ven to Venice to see Algarotti, she was immediately struck by how kind people were to a single woman travelling in Europe. And when she lost some snuff, somebody gave her some snuff. I mean, you know, she she did pretty well. She lived on her wits, and she rather liked the role of being the kind of the elder woman who young men on their grand tour would come to visit. She she relished that role. Yeah, so again, it's very modern, I think, and quite unusual at the time. With all the poetry and all the pamphleteering that she did and the plays, I'm surprised that there isn't a novel. Were you surprised? Were you hoping that you might discover that there was a novel? <laughs> oh, that's, that was a really lovely thought. But I think she's slightly before the novel, isn't she? They started happening in the sort of second half of the century. Because actually her daughter did send books out to her and she read Pamela and loved yes. it. Yes. Yes, Absolutely I remember that. Yes, mm. but by then she wasn't writing so much herself. It would have been wonderful if she had. Yes, but she, she, as she got older, she didn't write quite so much. So she liked to write in a more compressed epigrammatic way. That was the form of the time, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yes, a lot of poetry or, or small pieces of prose. Yes, small stories. And of course, she kept a journal her entire life, which her daughter is the only person to have read in full, and her daughter then destroyed. <gasps> yes, yes. So what do you know about that journal? What do you know about what her daughter read before she destroyed it? Well, all I know is that she only let her own daughter, Lady Louisa, read some of it. She wouldn't let her read it all. So I think it must have been very honest about all the people that Lady Mary met. It would have been her own thoughts about her entire life. I mean, I think if that had survived, she would have been a female peeps. I really do. Yes. Because her letters are so lively that you think if she was able to write her own thoughts, they would have been absolutely fascinating. Yes. So do you think part of the reason maybe then, Joe, that we don't know her better or that she isn't more famous in the kind of pantheon of feminism today is that perhaps her writing was too allegorical for our tastes today and we can't necessarily get all the references to mythology and antiquity into the classics? 
I'm sure you're right on that. I'm sure. That's what I was trying to say with Mary Estelle and Mary Wollstonecraft. They were writing pieces that were very, very clear about this is what should happen to women. You know, Mary Wollstonecraft was writing about the rights of women. Lady Mary wouldn't have, didn't write in that style. It was more kind of an, an ironic poem that you, and you'll have to try and read between the lines to work out exactly what she's saying. Yes. And so so she was not sufficiently polemical to cut no. through. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think she probably, that, that wasn't her, her, her character, her personality. Yes. She didn't think in those ways. She thought in a very kind of elliptical, witty way. But she, she could, it's very 18th century too, isn't very it? Very 18th century. Very 18th century. So ultimately, Joe, what do you think is her legacy? Wow, interesting question. Well, I, I think particularly for us at the moment, the the legacy of the smallpox inoculation is important. And a part of the story I haven't said, which is important to say, is that so she inoculated her daughter and inoculation was then something that was adopted in the West. And the young Edward Jenner, he was inoculated. And by then the whole process had been medicalised, which Lady Mary was against. So you were put on a very strict diet and you were bled and purged before you were inoculated. And it was that experience, the fact it was so grim, that made Jenna think there must be a different way of doing this. And he had heard that dairymaids didn't get smallpox because they got cowpox. And so he then, and obviously he was part of the medical establishment, he was able to prove that you could vaccinate people, in other words, from the Latin for cow, you could give them a little bit of cowpox and that protected them from smallpox. But if he hadn't been inoculated, if Lady Mary had not brought inoculation, then that would not have happened and we would not have all been here having our our vaccinations today. So that is an important legacy. So she is a staging post on that progression. Absolutely. Absolutely. She is. Yes. And it's important to make that link. Yes. And although, of course, she never knew that link because that happened after she died. So I think also I think it's an important legacy that she is a woman who is very much a strong woman of that time, who it's very important that we see there were women like that at that time, who were thinkers, who were writers, who felt they were equal to the Alexander Popes and the Congrees and the John Gays at the time. And I think she's overlooked for that. I think that's, that's a very, very important thing. Mary Montague really deserves to be more widely known. And this biography delivers a very entertaining account of the many facets and contradictions of her life in public and in private. Jo Willett is already at work on her next book about the 18th century British actress Mrs Siddons, who was famous for playing Lady Macbeth and fainting at the sight of the Elgin Marbles in London. In other biography news, Apple TV has quietly shelved production of The Confidence Man, the biography of Donald Trump by New York Times writer Maggie Haberman, which tells the story of his early years as a New York businessman. It seems no one in Hollywood is interested in the story anymore. Meanwhile, I have to say it was disappointing to see that no single Australian biography made it onto the shortlist for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards this year. Adelaide Writers Week in March 2023 will be a biography bonanza with both Dame Hermione Lee and Heather Clark appearing in person, both of them featured on this podcast in earlier episodes on Tom Stoppard and Sylvia Plath respectively. 
Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. This episode of Life Sentences was produced with a grant from Create New South Wales and I would like to acknowledge their generous support.